Would you like to turn in the New Testament to the book of Romans, chapter 1? <laughs> what I'd love to do right now is say, and haven't found that, and let's just turn back to Exodus. <laughs> but uh, no, it is Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to, Christ Jesus, to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you had joined a group, first time there, meeting with people that you've not met before, maybe, can I just say, if you have children here, it's great to have children here. We're a family and it's wonderful. Uh, and uh, when children are just chuntering, that is fine. But if they get to be disturbing, there is a room up at the back, just behind that center section, where you can actually listen to the message. Uh, you can quieten your children, come back in, but uh, just make that known in case you're not aware of it. Anyway, as I was saying, if you're joining a group, you're meeting with people you've not met before, and someone says, maybe the leader of the group, let's all just introduce ourselves. What would you say? Well, presumably you'd say something like your name. Maybe you'd follow on by talking about your occupation. Give your name, say, I'm a student, or whatever, uh, whatever your job is, and then maybe just say a little bit about your interests, the things that you do in your spare time or whatever. You'd, you'd say, obviously, your name, occupation, and something else about yourself. And that is exactly how Paul opens this letter. He begins with his name and then speaks about, if you like, his occupation. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. And then he speaks about his interests what it is that he does with his time, what, what it is that uh, he's, he's really given to, set apart for the gospel of God. This is who Paul is, and he's introducing himself because he's writing to people that he's never met, people who don't know him. He intends to visit them. That's his hope, and he says that uh, in verse 10. He <coughs> says, I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. He finishes his letter, uh, or as he draws to a close in chapter 15, he, he says that again, chapter 15, verse 10. Uh, he, sorry, not, um, is it verse 10? No, but um, he, he says anyway in verse 23 of that chapter, he says, there's, there's no, uh, since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through. And he says, pray for me 
uh, that I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. He's, he's waiting to see them. He longs to see them. And they've not, they don't know who he is. He's introducing himself to them. Now, it's good that he did that. Because for us, what we have here is an example of foundational basic truth. As Paul is introducing himself to them, he's setting out just who he is. He says what he lives for is set apart for the gospel of God. That's what he lives for, and he tells us what that's all about. So it's, it's wonderful basic truth. As our New Testament is arranged, this is the first of the letters that we come to, and one of the most substantial, wonderful explanations what, what do Christians believe? What is it all about? He sets it out here. But it's not an essay. It's not like uh, the kind of book that you might buy or whatever. It's a letter. It's personal. It's a personal letter from someone who is just enthusiastic, passionate about what he's talking about. And the possibility is always to kind of get into, uh, treat it as if it's some kind of essay, uh, maybe a, some like systematic theology or whatever, and you start debating points. No, this is a passionate letter. This is Paul explaining what makes him tick. And so we can be so grateful that he wanted to visit Rome, that he'd never met these people, and he wanted to introduce himself to them. And so we can enjoy what he has to say. And he begins, as we've said, by announcing his name, Paul he says, a servant of, G of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Just to comment on his name, many people, there's this kind of idea that goes around that Saul became Paul. That Saul, the person who hated the church, when he became a Christian, when he was converted, changed his name. And there are examples in the Bible of people who changed their name. Jesus called a guy called Simon to him and said, Simon, you will be called Peter. And so it's by no means unknown for people to change their name. In some cultures where people's name is associated with some pagan religion, when they become a Christian, they will change their name and get a Christian name. But that isn't what was happening to Paul and the uh, the New Testament actually makes it clear, and I don't know how this idea of him changing his name got around. But in Acts chapter 13 and verse 9, it says there, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then it goes on to say what he did. That's Acts chapter 13. His conversion was several chapters earlier, and in the meantime, several years have passed. And we read about Saul coming to the church in Antioch, teaching them and so on. He's, he's a Christian, been a Christian for years. He is still called Saul. And then it says, as Saul and Barnabas are sent off on this missionary journey, Saul, who is also called Paul. Fact is, as with us, he had more than one name. We have a first name and a second name. Some people have other names in between. And sometimes they have names in between that they'd vastly prefer no one to know about, which is what makes weddings such fun when people have to make their vows with their whole name. And all those mysterious initials then become clear. Paul had more than one name. 
And it is reckoned that Paul is his family name, what we would call a surname, and Saul was the name by which he was known among his friends. And it's interesting that the name change, if you like, happens as he moves off on his missionary journey. As he moves out into the Gentile world to tell people about Jesus, uh, then his family name is the name by which he's known. It's the more, more distinctive one. For example, if I discovered that some trick had been played on me, really mischievous, I think, who did that? Then a name will come to mind. Cressy. I wouldn't think John, because there are other guys here called John who are quite nice guys. <laughs> if it was mischief, I'd think Cressy. See, that's distinctive. That identifies the culprit straight away. The, the surname, the family name, is the distinctive one. The other one could be anyone. So Paul is that distinctive name. That's, that's, he, he didn't change his name when he became a Christian. He'd always been called that. Now, Paul, of course did have a remarkable change in his life. We're first introduced to him back in the book of Acts, in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, verse 1. This story has just been told, a, a horrible, horrifying event. A young Christian by the name of Stephen has just been lynched and stoned to death. And the story is told, and then it just simply says, and Saul was there, giving approval to his death. That's our introduction to the man. Saul was there, giving approval to his death, as he sees this guy stoned to death. And then in the next chapter, Acts 9 and verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's Saul as he started out. <coughs> a, a violent man with a virulent hatred against Christians and Christianity. He tells his story later on in his letter to the Philippians. He speaks of his upbringing and what gave rise to this kind of behavior. He says in Philippians chapter 3, and verse 5, <coughs> he describes himself as a Pharisee, that is someone who was well taught in God's law, and someone who was passionately concerned that God's law should be obeyed, and that people who are moving away from God's law should be reminded, this, this is what God says. He was, therefore, a conservative with a small c, we've got to maintain the law of God. That's his passion. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. That was what he was like. A violent opposer of Christianity. An intellectual man, well taught, well educated, but he saw Christianity as blasphemy and therefore, it had to be wiped out. And he became a Christian. He is converted. He meets with Jesus. Now, obviously, having met with Jesus, he's not just going to suddenly change his mind. He, he's been well taught. 
And so he's got to now think it all through again. He knows what the scriptures say, all the Old Testament scriptures. He's been well taught in that. He probably knows most of it off by heart. Now he's got to think it through. And so he spends years thinking it through, working it out. How the scriptures actually are all pointing to this one man who has changed history and recently changed his life, Jesus Christ. And so all that thinking, all that working, all that getting thrilled with this truth that he'd never understood and now he understands it's all about Jesus. That's what this letter is about. Setting out how he now understands who Jesus is. And so the violent adversary of the gospel becomes a convinced advocate of the gospel. Be a bit like in our day, if the news got out, and it's, this is not true, but it'd be a, wonderful if it were true, be a bit like in our day, if someone like Richard Dawkins became an evangelist. You know, he's written the book, The God Delusion, paying for adverts on the buses in London to say there probably isn't a God. A, a violent opposer of Christianity hates Christianity. Just imagine if you suddenly heard that Richard Dawkins is giving a talk on God created the world. <laughs> amazing, amazing. You think, for him to t- teach on that, he would have thought it all through, coming from his position. Well, sadly, that hasn't happened yet. But who knows? It happened with Saul of Tarsus. That was his level of hatred. And God turned him round. And so he describes himself as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Or it could be translated, perhaps more accurately, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, that's a strange description. The slave of Christ Jesus. And it's even stranger when you consider what that would have meant to the people to whom he's writing. Remember, he's introducing himself. In Rome, the place to which he's writing... There were thousands of slaves. They were the lowest of the low. The whole, cult- <coughs> Excuse me. the whole culture of the day meant slaves were nobodies. The culture of the day actually thought pride was a good thing. Pride is noble. They didn't even kneel to worship their gods. Because pride is a good thing. And therefore, to be a slave, despicable. You you wouldn't notice a slave. It's a non-person. And Paul, having grown up in that culture and knowing all about that, willingly calls himself a slave. A strange thing to call himself. A strange title. And yet, so distinctively Christian. Now, why does he call himself that? Well, it's a matter, first of all, of recognizing something, of recognition. He has understood who Jesus is, and he's understood what Jesus has done for him. And so he he expresses that when he writes another letter, the letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. 
How did that happen? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, being punished for our sin, he is buying us out of our sin, out of being controlled by the devil, who is the one who leads us into sin. Jesus, by his death, was conquering the one who held us captive and releasing us. Paul understands now, if Jesus died for me, I belong to him. And Paul understands that not just for himself. He says it, he teaches it to the church. He says, you're not your own. You have been bought. A Christian is someone who knows that the blood of Jesus was shed for them. Jesus cruelly punished dying in our place to buy us out of where we were to make us friends of God. We're not our own. So that wasn't just a a, a novel idea that he had. He fervently believed it when he is saying goodbye to some of his friends in Ephesus in Acts 20 and verse 28. He says to the leaders of the church there, be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. So it's a matter of recognition, recognizing what Jesus has done. But it's not just recognition, it's also a matter of devotion. You see, he, hadn't, he wasn't an unwilling slave. I've just been reading uh, that book. It's on the bookstore downstairs by Jonathan Aitken, the, the story of John Newton, the author of the hymn that we sing from time to time, Amazing Grace. John Newton was a slave trader. And the book pulls no punches. The book tells the story of what he did as a slave trader. It is horrific. And you read of that evil trade of the, uh, the ships arriving in Africa and then dragging healthy Africans who looked marketable in the new world, dragging them, streaming, screaming and kicking from their family, wife and children, so dragging them in chains in the ship to be taken off to the new world and sold. A horrendous, evil trade. That's slavery. Well, that isn't how Paul came into slavery. He hasn't been dragged against his will. He hasn't been dragged protesting, I don't want to come. It's a very different kind of slavery. And had we continued to read through the book of Exodus, the very next chapter from where we left it, Exodus 21... Exodus 21 and verse 5, it's talking about slaves, and it's talking about slaves being released. And then it says, Exodus 21, 5, but if the servant or slave declares, I love my master and my wife and children and don't want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, Then he'll be his servant for life. Now, of course, in the day when, uh, our day, when people go in for some quite extravagant body piercings, that might seem to be the ultimate, go around with a doorpost on your earlobe. Uh, But no, it was just held against the door and then pierced against the door and then you walked away. You didn't kind of have the doorpost left there. Uh, But that was a sign you belong 
in that household. And it's a willing slavery. The guy says, I love my master. I don't want to go free. It was a good place to be. And so the slave says, I don't want to get thrown out from here. I want to stay here. A willing slave. Paul was a willing slave. He's, he loves Jesus because of what Jesus has done for him. This is a glad commitment, a voluntary commitment. Later on in Romans, in chapter 6 and verse 19, Romans 6:19, he says, Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness. It's a willing slavery. We say, Jesus came from heaven, lived on earth, lived a disciplined life free from sin, and he disciplined himself and lived free from sin so that he could be an offering for my sin. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful thing to do. Leaving heaven, living on earth, living in all the temptations and tensions that I live with, and yet disciplining himself, keeping himself pure, because he had to be pure to die for me, punished not for any sin of his own because he had none, but punished for my sin. And he willingly died for me, punished, hit, flogged, and crucified for what I've done. The, the anger of God that I deserve, he took because he loved me. Well, I want to be his slave. I don't want to go out free, says Paul. I, I love this man. He know, Paul knows what he had done. And Paul's sins were pretty graphic ones. Persecuting the church, having people thrown into prison because they love the name of Jesus. We might say we haven't done anything as horrific as that. Maybe there are people here with a very guilty conscience knowing what you've done. But we've all sinned. We've all yielded to things that God hates. And Jesus willingly gave himself for us. And Paul says, I can't just pay lip service to this. I can't just say thanks and then move on. No, I'm your slave, Lord. I love you, Lord. I will not go free. It's a matter of recognition, but also a matter of just sheer devotion. Jesus has captivated him. Not just captured him, but captivated him. He loves Jesus. In Galatians 2, he just makes a, a simple statement that really expresses his conviction. Galatians 2, verse 20 he simply refers to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what changed his life. The Son of God who loved me gave himself for me. Can you ever get over that? Can you ever stop being amazed by that? Remember the other year when uh, I suddenly got kind of into the 21st century and went on Facebook. There you have to introduce yourself, you know, your name, date of birth, and all that stuff. Religion, it says. And that's what I put. The Son of God, who loved me, gave himself for me. That's my religion. That's what it's about. 
It's amazing. God's son coming, loving me, and giving himself for me. That's what's captivated Paul. This is not just, well, I'm a slave. I've been dragged into this. No, he's captivated by a wonderful love that has changed his life. Later on, when he's giving his testimony, writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, he says, Philippians 3 verse 7, he's speaking about what he used to have, and he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, and I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, be found in him. He says, I want to know Christ. This is the guy's passion. This is what he lives for. A slave of Messiah Jesus. He's understood who Jesus is. He's understood all that the Old Testament is saying about the one who's going to come, the anointed one, who's going to usher in a new day when people can be filled with the Spirit and know God. He understands this Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, he's, he's captured me. That's who I am. I was once a proud man. I was once somebody. I was once the sort of person that people took note of. An intellectual, well-educated, a Pharisee. People bowed to me. Now I'm a slave. Slave of Christ. He's got me. He's changed his life. He's living for Jesus. Now as a slave of Christ, he's been given something to do. And he says, called to be an apostle. His status in life is slave. His job as a slave is to be an apostle of Christ. He's not talking now about promotion. He's saying, this is, this is what my slavery leads me to. This is what I do as a slave. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. What, what does that mean? An apostle in that day was someone sent with authority to do something. Someone sent with authority to represent the one sending them and to do a specific task. So Jesus, we read in Mark chapter 3, called 12 guys to be with him. And it says he called them apostles because he's going to send them out to say what he was saying and to do what he was doing. That's why they were apostles. It, means, it refers to someone who's been sent, but sent with authority to do what the person sending them would do. And Paul here says a, a slave of Christ called to be an apostle, called to represent Jesus. He loves Jesus and has been called now to go with authority to represent Jesus. And particularly to represent Jesus in making Jesus known so that people come to believe in him. So they get grouped together to be churches and that whole li the life of that church is based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He describes himself writing to the Corinthians as an expert builder, someone who lays a foundation. He said, I've laid a foundation. The foundation is Jesus. And he said, be careful how you build on that foundation. But that's, that's his job. And he says called to be an apostle. This was not something he thought, this is what I'd like to do. 
It's not the result of his own ambition. It's not the result of any kind of group coming up with a strategy, saying, we need some apostles, who should we have? It's not a human strategy, it's not a human ambition. He says, called. It's referring to something that God has done. And that, of course, we, we know that is how it happened because we read about it in Acts chapter 13 when Saul and Barnabas and others were all just worshipping God and God spoke through the Spirit saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's God's call. And in fact, Paul makes it very clear that this was not some kind of group deciding it would be a good idea, not some kind of strategy for church growth or church planting or whatever. He says in Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is not some strategy. It's God called him, and God has sent him. And he is now allowed to represent Jesus And you get the sense he's amazed that he's allowed to represent Jesus. The one he persecuted. The one whose name he had hated and he had killed people who loved Jesus. Now, he's representing Jesus. A slave of Christ Jesus. Called to be an apostle. And it's on that basis that he's writing to these people. God uses and always has done God uses the most improbable people read through the Bible you see so often the people that God uses for (coughs) something really significant are people who protest they're not up for this they're not not suitable they're nobodies or whatever often it's in the Old Testament you see the, 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 the decision is made as they look at all the likely people and God says no not him not him not him is there anyone else oh there's him oh that's the one God wants do you consider yourself a nobody do you as you may be a part of this church and you, you look around and you, you can see the people that God is likely to use but not you because you're shy or not you because you you didn't go to university, or not you, because you're too old, too young, too whatever. And we kind of think, not me. God picks on improbable people to do amazing things, to show whose power it is, that it's God's, it's him. And that's what Paul senses here. No one could have been less deserving than him. And God's called him to be an apostle. Amazing, amazing privilege. And he says, set apart for God's gospel. Set apart. God has separated Paul from his history, from his past, from his sin, and given him something new to do. Separated from the past, for a purpose. This morning we've seen Julie being baptized. Baptism is when someone is separated from their past. They go through the water. The past is now behind them. They've been baptized. They're now rising to a new life. Separated from the past for a purpose. So Julie, wherever you are, God's got a purpose for you. You're separated from your past for 
a purpose. And Paul had been set apart, he says, for the gospel. His understanding of that is even more amazing because in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15, he says this. He says, God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. God set me apart from birth. You think, hey, Paul, you've lived all those years growing up as a devout Jew. You become a Pharisee. Knowing the law of God, teaching the law of God, you become an implacable opposer of Christianity. And all the time, from birth, God set you apart for the gospel. It's amazing. All the way through those years, when he's protesting, he hates this, God looks down from heaven and says, I've set you apart for something. God is amazing. Through all our rebellion against him, through all our mistakes, through all whatever, God's purpose stands. And you may be here this morning as someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. You've been invited by friends. Maybe you've come to see Julie baptized. I wonder what God, God's got in mind for you this morning. You know why you came. You know who it was who invited you. You know why you came. What's God thinking about you being here? Because that's what matters. What's God's plan for you? What has he decided from your birth? You think, he's taken a long time, but who knows what today could be for you. God watched over Paul doing all the horrific things he did and God didn't intervene until the time came God God confronted him and Paul becomes a slave of Christ Jesus. The wonderful mercy of God that he breaks into undeserving lives to bring such amazing good news. Because that's what this word gospel means. Good news. Set apart for the good news of God. God broke in with good news and now he's been set apart to tell people this wonderful good news. That's the theme of the letter. The good news about Jesus, the Savior who releases from slavery to sin, the Savior who releases us from not only the slavery of sin, but all the implications of being outside of God's life. It's That Jesus is king, that's the good news. It's an announcement of a king who has come, who is greater than anything else and anyone else. Paul is someone who (coughs) passionately preaches, proclaims about the kingdom of God. He said, I've been set apart for this. This is his theme. He loves it, he lives it, and he lives for it. It's very... (coughs) (coughs) It's very clear in this chapter, in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Some people might be ashamed. Some people might say, oh, you don't believe in Jesus. People did mock him for believing in Jesus. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's God's power 
for the salvation of everyone who believes. He loves this message. Set apart for the gospel. God's gospel. Not only does he love it, he lives it. Writing to the Corinthians, he speaks about his way of life, he said, which agrees with what I teach everywhere. He lives the gospel. What does that mean? Well, he lives in the light of who Jesus is. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. He lives for the gospel. Whatever he's doing, whether he's preaching or whether he's working at his, his job, he was a tent maker, whatever he's doing, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, cut him anywhere and the gospel is written there. It's not just what he does with Sundays. God has not sent his son into the world to give us something strange to do on a Sunday morning. God didn't send his son into the world to give us a part-time activity or a hobby. God came to change our lives so that we know him and we're thrilled with him and we're captivated by him and we love Jesus and so we live with Jesus by faith. He says, the righteous will live by faith. Faith in the Son of God. Whatever happens, we believe Jesus. Whatever we confront, we believe Jesus. He loves it. He lives it. And he's living for it. He wants to present this gospel. He wants to boast about this gospel. He wants to say how wonderful Jesus is. He wants to share this good news with anyone and everyone. You know, there are some people who have obsessions. A major obsession will be, for many people, football. And you've only got to be with them for five minutes, and the subject will turn to football. You know those irritating people? <laughs> it's just what they live for. It's, uh, yeah, they've got a job, they do other things, but... It'll always be football or whatever. Mary reckons that you've only got to be around me for five minutes. I'm going to start talking about buses. That is not true, but Mary reckons it. Because I've been talking now for a long time and I've only just mentioned it, so clearly it's not the case. Paul's obsession is Jesus. And he doesn't switch into, I ought to do some witnessing mode. He doesn't switch into, let's do some evangelism. He loves Jesus. You talk with Paul, he's going to tell you about Jesus. Not artificially turning a conversation around to talk about it. It's just who he is. You can't be around this guy without discovering Jesus has changed his life. He says set apart or separated for the gospel. A slave, a willing slave of Jesus Christ. He is thrilled with what God has done for him. Now we might look at that and say, yes, this is Paul introducing himself to people who have not met him before, which is true. But is this a description of a unique and remarkable man or is it relevant to us and potentially a description of us? Okay, called to be an apostle, we might say, no, that doesn't apply. But 
slave of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel. This is just a unique example, remarkable in the pages of history. I'd say no. Because Paul's message is to share this with others. That's why he's writing this. So that others can see how wonderful Jesus is. So that for others, their message will be Jesus and their experience will be Jesus. To be thrilled with him. Let's never get into Christianity. Let's never get into just church going. Let's never get into anything that is less than saying, I love you, Lord. I live for you. You have won my life. I can't stop being thrilled with you. I don't need someone to tell me, come on, let's praise God. I will praise God. As long as there's breath in my body, Jesus, I love you. And I know that when breath ceases to be in my body, the first thing I'm going to say is, when I see you, Jesus, I love you. You'll never stop me being thrilled with Jesus. Is that where you are? Because that's where Paul is. He knew how undeserving he was. And he met someone who loved him, died for him, rose again for him, and has accepted him. He is thrilled. And so his life is transformed. Okay, his name didn't change. Everything else did. And a transformed life is the promise and the potential for everyone who meets Jesus, called by him, captivated by him, changed by him. From time to time, we meet people who will tell their story and they'll say, it's too late for me. I can't change. The message of this guy is, if it's possible for him, It's possible for anyone. It's never too late. And no one is ever too bad. This Jesus changes lives and will captivate you. So however you have lived up to this point, you're just thrilled with him. You will be thrilled with him because of who he is.